Welcome to Better Angels, the podcast for women creating change. I'm Susan Ferry Price, and each week I have a conversation with an entrepreneur, activist, investor, or other visionary woman who's helping make our world a little bit better. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is sponsored by SheBD. SheBD is the first ever couture wellness company providing the highest quality CBD-rich, broad-spectrum hemp supplements that are formulated exclusively for women. All of SheBD's products, from their mess-free soft gels to their fast-acting comfort cream, are made from 100% organic sun-grown hemp that's sustainably processed and packaged here in the U.S. Experience the beauty of natural wellness. Learn more at SheBD.com. I don't remember exactly when I met today's guest, Susan McPherson, but once I had, I began to notice her name everywhere, and just about everyone I knew seemed to already know her. So when Susan calls herself a serial connector, it's the absolute truth. Susan's also an angel investor, a corporate responsibility expert, and the founder of McPherson Strategies, a communications consultancy that focuses on brands and social impact. When I heard that Susan had a new book, The Lost Art of Connecting, I knew she'd have some great advice about turning that dreaded concept of networking into something that's not only enjoyable, but can bring more meaning to our lives. Here's Susan. So you had first conceived of the book as sort of an antidote to our, you know, obsession with technology. Yes. And then the pandemic comes along. And all we have is technology. <laughs> Did that change how you kind of thought about these issues or your writing process in any way? I will say that writing the book was a, um, a panacea during a very difficult time, not just for me, but obviously and many people had it much worse than me. But for me, the challenge was constant silence um, and, you know, uh, no parents, no children, no partners. So having the book to focus on, you know, an interview, I interviewed something like 35 people for it gave me something, you know, to, and it, yeah, granted I run a company and I had my employees, but this was something also really, really special and actually talk to them about how are they connecting during the pandemic. So in some ways it gave me hope for the future that when we are finally through this, we're not going to ever take for granted our relationships. Now, you know, I, I realize I say that and then I know how fleeting memories can be, but this is a long pro. I mean, this has now been 18 months or 19 months, so it's not going to just go away, you know, but at the time writing it though, you know, we just kept thinking it was going to be another month, another month. Right. And maybe it's a good thing we didn't know because I probably would have just tossed in the towel and say, this is such a ridiculous idea for a book. But um, I think now looking back, I, I do feel, you know, I'm, I'm certainly grateful for the technology and I never was anti-technology. It's just, let's use technology as not the means to the end, right? Let's not just text to text or, or post to post or tweet to tweet, but actually be meaningful and mindful when we do um, and, and intentional. And in doing so, maybe there would be a lot less vitriol. And my hope is that, you know, post this whatever you want to call it at this point, we'll, we'll, we'll be mindful of that because we will be going back to, you know, not, I shouldn't say going back. We don't know what the future is going to be. It's not going to be like the past, but you know, we are going to be back in real places, but technology is not going away. So let's use it as the best way we can with intentionality. One of my favorite things about your book actually, and we'll get to this where, when we talk about the gathering, I think process is 
is doing it with intention because that really yeah. resonated for me now, especially because I'm in this new place. I have kind of different aspects of my career now. And it's sort of like, who do I want in my life in the future? And, yeah. um, and that's a really important part of this. It's not random gathering. So, no. so basically you took the kind of amorphous concept of connecting and put it into three buckets, gather, ask, and do. When you're talking about gathering, you're not talking about going to some party and collecting business cards and putting them in your desk, as we used to do in the old days, the stacks of business cards and rubber bands. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about the key points of gathering to you. Sure, sure. Well, and, and you know, suffice to say, when you write a business book, you have to have a methodology. So I had to do a lot of soul searching over the last 30 years, how I have become a good connector, how I've connected people and made introductions and kind of how how I've made it kind of my signature care, you know, calling card. And um, in doing so, I really realized I do indeed have a methodology. I mean, sometimes it's by the seat of my pants, but most of the time I'm actually being very, um, uh, you know, being thoughtful about it. And the gather section is the first of three, gather as do. And in gather, it it's very much about connecting with the most important person in your life, and that's you. And doing some deep thinking about what it is that you want to have happen in your life in the next four years, four months, hell, four weeks, and being very mindful about who is it that you want to meet or reconnect with that's going to help you reach those goals. But also during Gather, you do a self-assessment to essentially learn what are your superpowers or secret sauces, and in the book, I refer to them as your chief differentiating factors, because the underlying theme for the entire book is leading with how you can be helpful to others. And the only way you can be helpful to others is if you understand what, what, how can you be helpful? So that's also in the gather phase. And then lastly in gather is, and obviously there's a lot more, it's a, you know, 225 page book, but um, lastly, this, this notion that we need to get out of our hermetically sealed bubbles and connect with people who may not look like us, sound like us, the same age as us, the same race and cultural heritage as us. Um, because we know that old adage that a goldfish can't see water unless it breaks out of its bowl. So I, I very much believe in breaking those bowls. And sometimes those connections that are kind of the less likely ones are the most, I find the most inspiring or the, the get you thinking in a new way. How would you define, at least for you, what you consider a meaningful connection? Yeah. Well, for me, it's the people that keep showing up or that have shown up in the good times and bad. But for everyone, it's a very different thing, right? Um, but I think, you know, it's the people that stand the test of time. Yeah, I would say the same thing. It's someone you can rely on. Yeah, someone who you can rely on, somebody who checks in on you. Um, but we can't expect people to do that if we don't do that for them. And I don't mean just our friends, but, you know, our colleagues, people that we meet and then have a really nice rapport with. It doesn't hurt a few weeks after you meet someone to reach out and just say, you know, it was really nice chatting with you. I'd love to get together again, you know, even for five minutes. And I realize people are busy and not everyone's going to respond accordingly, but there's no harm to be done by doing something like that. Right. And, and all you can control is your, your intention to do that. And if someone's busy, they're busy, you know, that's okay. That's not a reflection on you, but you're making that overture. Um, which brings me to the second bucket, which is ask, which I'm guessing is kind of the harder part for most people. 
think it really depends. I think when we first hear ask and gather us do, we assume it's asking for what we deserve and need, especially as women, because, you know, again, this is a generalization, but we're often not bold enough to ask what, you know, what we deserve. Um, and we could learn a lot from some of our, our, uh, the men that we work with and interact with. Um, but in the ask phase, my focus is on helping people learn to the art of asking others questions to learn more about them, to learn where they are in their lives, to learn what are their hopes and dreams. Because if you don't ask those questions, you can't get to my favorite um, section. And that is the do. And that's when you follow through and you basically, if you say you're going to make an introduction, you do, or perhaps you, you know, listen to somebody and, and come back and recommend a nonprofit that they might have interest supporting because they mentioned that they have a lot of interest in helping solve racial, um, inequities in these country in this country. Right. So, yeah, I mean, really key to that, then you have to be curious about other people yeah. Yeah. and then you have to well, listen to what yeah. they're really saying or yeah which is which is which can be very very challenging for us myself included um because we are so harried and overlooked and overtapped i mean over not overlooked over overextended <laughs> overstimulated overwhelmed exactly exactly like it's a non-stop every day right and it yeah um not to mention the news and you know, our work lives, our home lives, and, and this pandemic certainly is, hasn't helped. But, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I got to interview Dr. Julian Treasure, who has four or five TED Talks on the subject of, of becoming a better listener. And I learned very quickly something that I have done uh, wholly incorrectly over the years. And that is I do anticipatory listening where I'm, I'm always listening for clues because I love to hang out in the do section so much. I'm always listening for things I can be doing to follow through, to be supportive. And it's just probably a nervous tick of mine, but it is what it is. So I now have to kind of slow back, like roll, roll back and just pay attention and then think about the things I can do as a follow-up, as opposed to trying to already do the do right then. I think a lot of people don't initially get to the meat of what they really need. Like there's sometimes you have to ask levels of questions before you're really drawing out what this person really is about or what they really need. So I think we all kind of jump in too quickly and we're not letting that process go. That's hard to do though. Oh, well, that's, I, that's why I suggest, you know, listening, his Ted talks are really informative and, you know, I've become a slave to always taking notes when I'm talking to folks, just so I can actually remember. Cause as I age, my memory just isn't quite what it used to be. Even if it was, it's still, when you're meeting a lot of people, it's very difficult to do that. So now we get to do, and how do you do things for others without it, and maybe this goes back to a gender thing. I think women do tend to do a lot for other people. Where do you set a boundary there? Or I think it goes back to the gather and be try to be as mindful as you can that you're helping people that are going to align with the goals that, you know, and not, not to say that you're completely self-centered and not just caring and doing things for others because it's a good thing and an important thing to do, but you know, it could get out of control and I'm not, I certainly don't want people to be just walking around events saying, hi, I'm Susan. Can I help? How can I help you? Cause you know, the, the, it isn't genuine. It's not, and it's not even feasible to actually do, but you know, really think about, you know, what is, what, is, what are your goals and how can being helpful to others help you meet those goals? Because we all know for helpful to others, 
inevitably they will help us. Not everyone. There's always going to be, you know, the takers and, and that's just life. And, you know, part of, part of getting smarter in, in our world is knowing who the takers are and, and being upfront and honest with them, which of course I'm not saying is easy, but the thing is, is, um, you know, it, it, we all know how and ways we can be helpful. And I'm suggesting, you know, you know, not try to help the world, but be somewhat strategic about how you, you give out help because you just get exhausted. I think that's the, the what you were raising. And I guess the way to really discover that is what you're saying is if you, if you share a genuine connection with somebody, it doesn't become a transactional right. or random well, thing. And again, Susan, this is over the long haul. You know, I, I mean, I, I often ask for a show of hands when I do talks now and, um, you know, even in Zoom and say, you know, how many of you have connected with people or been asked to connect on LinkedIn? And then within an hour, they're asking, to, they're asking you to buy from them. And I say, what if instead they did a little research before they reached out to you to make the ask and offered something up first? Wouldn't it be a much like more um, uh, enriching conversation? Wouldn't you be much more likely to consider having a relationship with this person? And, you know, again, it may sound like it's coming from a manipulative place. I think it's coming from a human place. Right. It's, it's recognizing there's a there's something for both of you in it. It's not, and it's not a sales goal or, you know, a monetary transaction, which I think a lot of people, and I certainly would say this about myself and maybe it's a serious character flaw. I don't know. Whereas I'm a very extroverted person, but I will put up a little bit of a wall and maybe that makes me an introvert and I don't know it. I don't know. what. (laughs) Um, In my next life, I want to be an introvert. I think that's impossible. (laughs) I don't think we can even conceive of that (laughs) lifetime for you. So how did your own recognition of yourself, I know you call yourself a serial connector, which you absolutely unequivocally are, when did you sort of recognize that this wasn't something that's natural to everybody? Well, I, I was lucky enough to grow up with um, parents that were serial connectors, but didn't have the technology we have today. So it was, it was, you know, placed in my inner being from the age six or seven on, or at least, you know, as long as I look back at the earliest memories I have. And every morning at the breakfast table, I would literally buy for real estate for my bowl of cereal because they would have the five local newspapers spread out plus yesterday's or the day before's New York times and Boston globe. And they would be clipping and cutting and then going to their respective manual typewriters to write short little missives to people that they knew people that they used to know people that they worked with relatives, and then off into the U S mail, they would go. So I just assumed everybody's parents did that. And obviously, you know, fast forward 40, 50 years later, um, um, it's, I just now do an extension of what they did because that was normalcy for me. Um, you know, once the nineties came after, you know, the, the, the few years with a fax machine and being able to attempt to do what they did, but could never figure out how to use the fax machine. I found that, you know, when you would email 10 people, um, on the same chain about a particular issue or cause or, or happening, you were already creating community by connecting those people. And, you know, just, uh, just yesterday, there was an article I read in the New York Times about Texas politics. So I sent out a text to nine people who live in Austin, maybe a couple know each other. The texts started flying. And by the evening, they were all making plans to meet. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> so 
it's real time. You know, we're just using technology or taking what my parents did and use it in a, in, in a far more expedient way. Um, but these were all women who, who I've known or met over the years that have lived in various places and now live in Austin. And they have, I figured they would have a shared interest in this article about the future of Texas given everything we've seen. And, and, you know, one person's response was, oh my God, I, I'm scared to read it, but it was actually an uplifting piece. It was, it was saying that kind of what we're seeing now is the last hurrah. Um, so anyhow, um, but I just, you know, the reason I explained to that is, is, you know, this isn't just in my book, this is the way I live. Um, and in 2007, I went away with, uh, eight or so girlfriends and the goal of the weekend was, to articulate our, to be able to walk away and with an articulated elevator speech. Um, so this is where that secret sauces came from. And at the end of that weekend, I was finally able to say out loud, hi, I'm Susan McPherson and I'm a serial connector. It sounded so ridiculous, but 16 years later, I wrote the book on it. So, you know, it, there is such a thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's also important to recognize where our strengths are. And, you know, it, I think there was a section in your book, or maybe it was just a line that stood, it's just jumping out of my head now. It's like originality is your superpower. Like some of the things that sound most ridiculous when you define yourself are actually, you know, what's a needed in the world and also who you really are. Um, yeah. So many people try to fit in. Overall, how has being a serial connector, so give us a little inspiration here, enriched your work? I founded my company at age 48. Um, it was a lark. It was basically a placeholder until I found the next job. Um, a couple of organizations had said that they would um, kindly, you know, take me on as a, as a consultant for a few months so that, you know, it gave me a bit of a, a insurance policy, so to speak. And of course, eight years later, I'm still sitting here <laughs> and I just, we're, we're about to hire our 14th, 13th and 14th employees. Um, Here's the thing, 95% of our business has been inbound. And that tells me that all those meetings I took, all those people I connected actually have come back to help. I mean, not every single one of them, but it wasn't like in my you know 20s, 30s, and even my early 40s that I even had an inkling that I would be running a company. So, you know, there was no um, intention, there was no intentionality there that, you know, I was trying to do a quid pro quo when I would make a connection. It was more because I just wanted to make the connection. And tell us just a little more about your impact work. Well, and I see connection as, as making connections is absolutely tantamount to having an impact or good, you know, and making positive good in this world um, because we need people to collectively cross borders, cross towns, cross geographies, you know, to, to work together because I, I fervently believe as, as um, challenging as things are today, we, we actually have more in, 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 in connection with one another than that. Um, we have more, you know, we have more in common than, than we believe. Um, we just sometimes have to tap into it. So my company, um, McPherson Strategies is all about the communications of impact. We work with large companies, we work with NGOs, and we work with, um, a couple of, you know, every year of, of startups that are very, very, uh, um, let's say, you know, realize the value of, of um, social impact from the get-go. But that's a rare thing. Normally, it's, it's corporations and, and NGOs. And sometimes it's helping the company speak to its own employees. 
Um, most often it's speaking to the general public via earned media, paid, et cetera. So if you think about all the communications that organizations could use, we're in the social impact um, swim lane. Is there anything you're seeing on that in general that the pandemic is affecting? You're hearing a lot more companies talk about issues and then you're seeing them not talk about some moments when you're expecting them to. Um, the Texas example maybe is key there. It's, uh, we, you know, I could go on and on about the, the political issues in this country, but, you know, from a, you know, we have rode the wave of CSR, uh, corporate social responsibility, ESG, with, you know, um, all these kind of acronyms becoming um, not, not a nice to have, but a must have. And, you know, the firm has benefited because when I started working in corporate responsibility around 2005, it was very much nascent, right? Now you have young people that will only work for a company that puts purpose first. And the thing is, we have all the tools to find out the, you know, the transparency behind it. So um, you also have people who only buy from companies that are doing, doing the right thing. And lastly, you only have, you know, financial institutions are investing in companies that have clear sustainability um, plans for their future. Um, you know, because with climate change, they're not going to be around if they don't make, you know, concessions at this point in time in terms of their supply chain and their packaging and their water usage, et cetera, and their energy footprint. So we've, we've, again, you know, I'm grateful that, that we were a beneficiary of that. Am I grateful that, that it took to get here to get companies to be thinking about that? No. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's it, one of the things I've seen through the pandemic is uh, a real, not everyone, but a sense of leadership leading with compassion and kindness. Of course, that's a, gen, that, that's a general state, statement, but that old adage that it's all about the shareholders is, is finally, we're, we're finally moving past that. I mean, you see the number of companies that are, are um, transitioning to B Corps. You see a number of, of, you know, I mean, almost every company now that, that is of size, and I don't, don't quote me on that number, but it does an annual sustainability report and puts out their goals and you can hold them accountable through your purchases, through your, your 401k, et cetera, through your voice. So I think we're in that sense, we're heading in the right direction. Um, and I do think if anything, um, this pandemic has somewhat leveled the playing field in terms of leading with com compassion and kindness. But just the fact that you're even speaking about leadership and compassion, that topic, you know, I was a business. Yeah, that was nobody, never, right? No, nobody I ever interviewed 20 years ago in business talked about compassion, kindness, vulnerability. They just didn't do it. So no. we clearly no, have made no. progress. It's like for, 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 you know, wusses or, you know, people that weren't strong. I mean, I, you and I can probably remember a time when if we had a tear in the office, oh, it yeah. was, it was detrimental. You had to hide in the bathroom. There were always yeah. people crying in the bathroom. <laughs> Is it perfect? By no means. And if anything, what I would suggest to leaders out there is to really make connecting a priority, a connecting with your employees, helping your employees connect, because we are not going to go back to the way it was. We're not going to be in line sitting next to one another in cubicles, et cetera. I mean, yes, I should say some may, but why don't we use this opportunity to, to reinvent the future rather than trying to go back to a past life? More compassion and connection sound like very good ideas to me. 
Be sure to pick up a copy of Susan's book, The Lost Art of Connecting. Use the link in the show notes and support independent bookstores through bookshop.org. And follow Better Angels on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. See you next week.